Amen. How you doing, church? Doing good? Awesome. Feel great. Uh, sound terrible. You doing okay? You doing all right? All right, wake up. Grab your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be in Numbers chapter 22. Verse 22 is where we're going to start. Numbers 22, 22. And as you're looking there, let me just check. How, you, how are you doing on your Daniel fast? Doing good? Yeah, me too. All right. It's awesome, isn't it? So you learn a lot about people and yourself when you fast together, especially if you fast together as a family. It's a lot like playing Monopoly. You find out a lot about the hearts of people. You find out very quickly who the rule keepers are. That would be Gretchen in my house, all right? And not only does she like to tell you the interpretation, but where you're not living up to it, so that's fine. Uh, the rule breakers, uh, that would be my children, all right? JP said he was Daniel fasting, and then uh, on Wednesday night, he's eating shrimp. And Gretchen says, hey, shrimp's not on the Daniel fast. And he immediately says, Mom, it is not a very good idea for a growing boy to not eat meat. So in his version of the Daniel fast, there's meat and treats, which I think is the Samson fast, you know? which is just meat and honey, and uh, we're going to keep him away from the wine and women. And then, and then there's also the rule benders, which is me, because I know a lot of Bible verses, so I can, you know, kind of make it work for me. And uh, just so you know, uh, in, in the spirit of rule bending, um, in our Daniel Fast 11.22, if, you if you're not on board yet, get on board with us. Uh, you've got to go an extra three days, okay, because those of us that really love Jesus started back on Wednesday morning. But add three days, uh, but we do, you can drink coffee, okay, on our Daniel Fast, amen? You can drink coffee, because it's just water and a bean, all right? That's just true. And anybody tells you not to drink coffee, that's a cult, get your things and run for the door, all right? That's just, <clears throat> I think it's a proverb or something. All right, so uh, uh, Numbers chapter 22, verse 22, that's where we're going to pick it up as we finish up this series called Greater Than, where we've been talking about the reality that God is greater than our emotions, greater than our feelings. And today we're going to talk about the truth that God is greater than our limitations, or greater than our perceived limitations. <clears throat> so what happens in verses 1 through 21, is there is this false prophet named Balaam. And, and if you just read chapter 22, 23, and 24, it looks like Balaam is a great guy. And you've got to go to other places like Revelation 2.14 and 2 Peter 2.15 to find out that really Balaam was just a prophet for hire. He would say whatever you wanted to if you have enough money to give him. And so essentially there's this evil king named Balak. And Balak comes to Balaam and says, hey, I need you to curse Israel because Israel is camped right outside my kingdom and they're tearing through everybody and I'm afraid they're going to tear through me. So he comes to Balaam and says, let me pay you to come and curse this nation of Israel. And so Balaam goes before the Lord and the Lord says, hey, whatever you do, do not go with Balak and do not curse the nation of Israel. And so Balaam comes back to Balak and says, well, I can't really go with you, but why don't you just kind of stick around the house for a little while and let's sort of see what happens. And essentially, he's kind of flirting with um, this evil king instead of doing exactly what God says to do. And in chapter 22, verse 20, God says, well, I tell you what, if you want to go with him, go ahead, which is why I tell you never to text anything serious or sensitive because you can't read, read tone in text. Because what we're going to figure out here, apparently, God said, yeah, just go ahead. It's fine. Seriously, go ahead. Much like husbands, your wife say, yeah, just go ahead. Seriously, go fishing. It's fine. You know what I'm saying. It ain't fine. And you don't find out until you went like, but I thought you said. Okay, so that's what happened. God's like, all right, seriously, if you want to go, go. And then he goes, and this is what happens in verse 22. But God's anger was kindled because Balaam went, <clears throat> and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him, and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the road, and he went to the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. This is the first evidence of road rage in the Bible. There it is. All right, verse 24. 
And then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. And then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam and Balaam's anger was kindled and he struck the donkey with his staff. And this is where it gets good. Verse 28. And then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and the donkey said to Balaam, and I just got to tell you, when I read this, I hear it in the voice of the donkey from Shrek, okay? (laughs) Donkey, right here, all right? And so donkey says, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And then, what do you do when your donkey starts talking to you? You argue back. And so Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, and then I would kill you. And then, and the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. So this prophet for hire is kind of outsmarted by the donkey, all right, in this conversation, verse 31. And then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and Balaam saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed down and he fell on his face, and the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. And then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. And so Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. And then what happens is in the next few chapters, four times uh, Balaam gives these oracles of blessing over the people of God. So what, the reason I, I share this, this event with you <clears throat> is because what I want to talk about this morning is the reality that God is greater than our limitations. And something that is just true is that God wants to use you in the ministry. God wants to use you in the ministry. And one of the things that I hear about here at 1122 and anywhere I've ever been over and over and over is anytime we talk about that reality that God wants to use ordinary people like us for his glory and our joy, one of the things that we're most often faced with is limitations. People begin to think, well, God couldn't use me. Um, You know, I'm not filling the blank enough. And what I want you to begin to see here is that if God can use a donkey, If God, I so much want to use the King James right now, but I will refrain, all right, I'm growing up. If God can speak through a donkey in the Bible, then guess what? He can speak through you, and He can speak through me. That that regardless of our limitations, our limitations should never limit us because we serve a limitless God. And He will use who He wants for His own glory and for our joy. And so here's the point. Here's the point of everything I'm going to try to communicate today is this. it's really this quote out of David Platt's book called Radical Together. And David Platt's been praying this, and I've been adopting it because I think it's awesome. He says, Lord, let me make a difference for you that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. You see, God wants to do that. God wants to answer that prayer. Lord, use me in such a way, God, for your glory, for your kingdom, that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. Because I think there's a whole lot of people at church waiting on somebody else to make a difference for God. 
The God that people think, you know what, I, you know, I, I'm just kind of ordinary, average, whatever. The God just uses the superstars and uses the elite and uses those with incredible talent and incredible gifts. But the reality is, is that he wants to use every single one of us. And that God actually delights in using the weak things of this world to, just, to demonstrate his strength. That God use, loves to use the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Do you know how I know? Exhibit A. I am a redneck from Dillon, South Carolina, and, and, and my prayer is this, that God would use me to make a difference for him that is utterly disproportionate to who I am. If you don't believe me, if you look all throughout the scriptures, God has made a habit of taking people that had all kind of limitations and using them for his glory. Abraham was too old. Sarah laughed at God's promises. Moses stuttered and he killed a guy. David's armor didn't fit. He was too young. He killed a guy and had an affair. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Jacob was a liar. Lazarus was dead. Peter was a wimp. John was self-righteous. The apostle Paul was a terrorist. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Noah got drunk and Samson had long hair. So God can use anybody, including folks like me and you. In fact, when the, um, when the church first got started, what God, what Jesus decided to do was to use like, like the most unqualified group of people. If you go to Acts chapter 4, verse 13, <clears throat> the Bible says this. Now, when they, that's, that's like the, the elite, the religious people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, when, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, if you knew anything about first century rabbi school, you would know that Peter and John were dropouts. Peter and John were the people that could not get into the Ivy League schools. You know, they couldn't get into places like Princeton or Yale or Georgia. They just couldn't make it. You understand what I'm saying? They were just normal people like us. And here's how we know, because, because when Jesus found them, they were fishing with their dad. That's what they were doing. And so what would happen is everybody, boys and girls, would go to Hebrew school at a young age. And then the best of the best of the best of the best, they would graduate like to the next level. And then the cream of the crop from there, the top, they would get invited to follow a rabbi. But, but if you didn't have what it took to, to go to rabbi school, then the rabbi would come to you and say, look, God still has a purpose and a plan for your life, so why don't you go and learn the trade of your father? And so the fact that these men were fishing with their dad is evidence that they, they were the B team. They were the JV. They were not the varsity. They were the guys that got cut. They got cut. And who, of all the people in all the world, who did Jesus make a living picking and pouring into and starting the church with? Just ordinary, uneducated men like, like Peter and John. And the only thing that was different about them is that they'd been with Jesus. And you see, here's the problem. We have a, to we, we have a complete misunderstanding of what the church is. A complete misunderstanding of what the church is. You know, something very, very tragic happened in language a couple of thousand years ago. Because in the book of Matthew, in Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus stood, stood on this rock and he said, he asked Peter, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The word there for church was ecclesia. It means it mean the gathering of called out ones. It means a movement of God's people. That's what it is. That out of the gate, the church was supposed to be a movement, a movement of God's people proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was the point of the whole church. 
And about 300 years later, they, they began to, instead of using the word ecclesia, they used the word called kirche. It eventually would be a German word. And kirche means the Lord's house, of which we get the term church. And this thing went from being a movement to a place you go on a Sunday morning. And it's tragic. See, because then what began to happen, man, you fast forward 2,000 years and you got this thing we've got. You've got, you've got people thinking that the church is not a movement of God's people declaring God's glory all over the earth, but church is like an event that you attend. That you go to church and you show up and you watch the people on stage and the professionals entertain you and challenge you and do what they do and then you walk out of here and wait until next week to show back up and see if you like it again. And it's really, really a sad thing because the reality is is that you... The people of God are really supposed to be on the front lines of ministry. And actually, when I came to work at church, I really got out of the ministry. My job is to equip you for the work of the ministry. You see, I'm a professional Christian. You know what that means? I get paid to be good. You know what it means for you? You're good for nothing. That's what it means. And so, what I want to convince you of is the reality that God wants to use you, not just us. That if you're a believer in Christ, if you are a follower of Christ, the first thing Jesus said to his early disciples is, follow me and I will put you to work. I will make you fishers of men. You are going to be on the front line of ministry. The Bible says it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds, and the teachers. That's like the church staff, all right? He gave the church staff to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For the building up the body of Christ, that's you. That my job is actually to equip you to create the kind of environment that we call this movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus Christ. That that we would create the kind of environment here where you would begin to figure out that you were on the front lines of ministry and then you would get in the game and get to work. In fact, Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. He says, but you, he's talking about believers in Jesus, but you... You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is a big deal. Listen to me, especially if you grew up Catholic. Listen, if you are in Christ, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, you're in the priesthood. Go home and call your Catholic grandma and be like, guess what, grandma? I'm a priest. And she's going to be like, what? Really? You are, that you are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood. What that means is you don't need a human mediator between you and God anymore. Jesus is the great high priest. That means you have direct access to God Almighty. And so, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. And so the reality is, is that God wants to use you. You. I am not talking about the person sitting next to you. If you are in Christ, that means that God has a purpose for you and a plan for you, and it actually ain't about you. That God does not become a part of your story, but you get to come up, become a part of His story. All right? That, that the, the world no longer revolves around you, but you've just got to get in your rightful orbit around the Son, which is the Son of God. He has a purpose and a plan for you. And so, God wants to use at least five things in your life. And, and I know it's more, but at least five things. And again, the reason I point out the donkey is because if God can use a donkey to speak through, then surely he can use people like us. Surely he can use people like us. In fact, in the book of Acts, there are 40 recorded miracles. 39 of the 40 miracles in Acts 
happen outside of the church in the front lines of ministry. Do you understand that? That the church is not just a place where you come to and you check it out, but it should be a place where you come and you are equipped for the work of the ministry. So five things that God wants to use in your life. Number one is this, that God wants to use your eyes. That God wants to use your eyes. If you look back at the donkey here in Numbers chapter 22, God gave the donkey the ability to see things that Balaam could not see. And let me just tell you what's true. If you're in Christ and you begin to abide in Christ, that means grow in your relationship with him. And if you begin to abide in his word, you'll begin to see as God sees. And as you begin to see as God sees, you'll begin to do as God says. You see, and God wants to use your eyes Maybe not in some kind of supernatural way, because every time I say, you know, God's going to allow you to see things others can't see, all the hyper-charismatics are like, Shekinah glory. Okay, maybe, maybe, but, but really what you'll be able to see is you begin to understand the precepts of God, you'll be, uh, begin to understand that every single one of us are on a pathway, and every pathway has a destination, and it is our direction, not our intention, that determine our destination. That's just true. And this will begin to happen to you as you abide in Jesus and abide in his word. What will begin to happen is you will be able to see the future. You're like, like a prophet, sort of. You will be able to go up to your friends, and, and, and this is also true in your own life, but let's just talk about our friends, all right? It makes it easier to, it makes it more palatable. You'll be able to go up to your friends and be like, hey, bro, I, God has spoken to me and I can see your future. And they'll be like, what? Please tell me, a wise one. He go, okay, listen, I've looked into your past, and you know, in your past, you have a history of not having enough money and buying stuff anyway. Currently, in your current situation, you still don't have enough money and you're buying stuff anyway. I can see your future. Bro, you're going to be broke, all right? <laughs> Why? Because you're on a pathway. You, and I know you want to be rich one day, but let me just tell you the truth, that, that the rich rule over the poor and that the debtor is slave to the lender. And right now, you're, you're, you're in slavery to your master card. It's just true. And if God wanted you to have more, he'd give you more. And right now, you are on a trajectory that leads somewhere. And it is your direction, not your intention. I know, I know you have great intentions about one day you're going to be generous. You can't even be generous because you're on a pathway that leads somewhere. Or some of you will have a friend and you'll go to him and say, look, I, I can see your relational future. Because I've heard you talk, and what you say, what you say is one day, one day I'm going to be a godly husband married to a godly woman. I'm going to have a godly family. That's, that's the trajectory I want to be on. That one day, man, I'm going to have a house with a family, and I'm going to have intimacy with my wife, and it's going to be awesome. And God's going to give you the ability to see, look into somebody's life and be like, well, here's the problem. Right now, you're on a pathway, and what you've been doing so far is it's hook up, shack up, break up. Hook up, shack up, break up. Hook up, shack up, break up. Rinse and repeat. And that leads somewhere. But bro, it don't lead where you think it's going to lead. See, God wants to use your eyes to begin to be able to see the future in your life and in other people's lives. And it is direction. It is direction, not intention, that determines your destination. Because I'm going to tell you, if you plan a trip to Miami, you might plan a trip to Miami and get your disciple group together and be like, let's play, pray for our trip to Miami and take your beach stuff and your umbrella and your tan and lotion, you know, and whatever. And then you, you drive out to 95 and you head north and you ain't going to Miami. I don't care how much you pray about it. I don't care how many worship songs you listen to on the way. I don't care how much you go, glory, God, give me Miami. Well, God's going to say, Miami, don't go this way. You understand? You got to turn around, repent and go south. 
That's what you got to do. God wants to use your eyes, your eyes to be able to see what this world cannot see. God wants to use your eyes. Also, well, let me read this. Uh, Proverbs 27, 12 says this. The prudent see danger and they take refuge. This is God using your eyes. That you would look into the future and you would, you would look through the lens of the gospel and you say, oh, I think if I keep going on this path, there's danger up there. And the prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. The second thing God wants to use is God wants to use your mouth. God wants to use your mouth. You see, maybe you've heard this quote before, all right? <clears throat> I love, a lot of people love to hide behind it. It says this, preach the gospel at all times. Use words only when necessary. That sounds awesome, doesn't it? Only problem? It's really dumb. It's just really dumb. People attribute it to St. Francis of Assisi. He never said it. Um, I get the heartbeat of it. Don't be a hypocrite. Yeah, amen. Just say that then. Don't be a hypocrite. But to say preach the gospel at all times and use words only when necessary, the gospel is good news. Good news must be heralded. In other words, you have to talk about it. You have to write it down. That's what news is. News is information that must be transferred. To say preach the gospel at all times, use words only when necessary, would be like saying, give me your phone number. Use digits only when necessary. Uh, it is digits. That's what it is. The gospel is good news. And so, if you think, Christian, that you're just going to live your life, and one day, just because you are so amazing that people are going to see that and understand that a Savior came to die on the cross for their sins, then you're totally, you, you're totally mistaken. In fact, if you just point at you and how good you're living, then guess what? That is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is not, look at me, I've got it all together, try to be more like me. The gospel is, I am a wretched, black-hearted sinner. That in and of myself, I am dead and dying lost. And that God sent Jesus on a rescue mission to save me. That is a message that has to be spoken. Romans says it this way. Paul, in the, in the letter to the church in Rome, says in 10.14, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? That God wants to use, check this out, your mouth. For you to save stuff. And not only that, not just in regards to sharing the gospel, God also, as He begins to use your eyes and you see the future and you've got friends and they are on a pathway to destruction, God wants to use your mouth to step into their life and with your arm around them and say, hey bro, can we talk? Can we talk? Because you are on a pathway and this pathway leads somewhere. And I love you too much to do like most Christians. What most Christians do is they just, they just pray about them. Like, oh, dear God, we just, we just want to lift up Ted to you. Ted is really making some horrible financial decisions. God's like, I know. And Ted's just really making some really, really bad life decisions. God goes, I know. And really, really, God, just deliver Ted from his relational idiocy. And God goes, I know. And I think at some point, now I'm pro prayer, but I think at some point, God would lean in and be like, hey, how about, Instead of talking to me, why don't you talk to Ted? Okay? Because guess what? I know. I mean, I appreciate the executive report here about Ted. But I don't know if you figured this out. I know everything about him. And you know why you want to pray about him all the time? Because I've actually sent you. I put him on your heart. So can you just shut up and talk to Ted? Can you? And again, I'm pro you got to do both. But at some point, God might lean in and be like, okay, stop praying. Start saying because a lot of times, what we do is we see Ted on that pathway, heading to the cliff, and we're just praying, dear God, be with Ted, be, dear God, be with Ted. And then over the cliff, you're like, I'm praying for you, Ted. 
God's like, hey, how about say something? Say something. God wants to use your mouth, your mouth, to say whatever it is he's called you to say. And some of you are like, well, I'm not good at that. Neither was the donkey. The donkey had a very, very, very limited vocabulary until God stepped in, and here's, and here's the truth, and gave him exactly what the donkey needed to say. And so when you begin to trust God that way, I'm telling you, he'll open your eyes, you'll be able to see things more clearly than you've ever seen them, and open your mouth. And some of, to some of you who have stepped out in faith and done this, anybody ever done this before? Anybody ever talked to a friend? Come on, raise them high. It ain't prayer. I'll just testify. See, see, it happens sometimes. Sometimes you'll be with a friend, you know God's saying, go ahead, say something. Don't just pray, say something. And you start talking. And then you're talking and you're like, and you quote a verse. And you're like, I didn't even know that was in there. Oh my goodness, that's sanctification happening in your life, right? You begin to think, I sound so awesome right now. That's not you. Do not create credit for that. That is the Holy Spirit using a donkey to talk to somebody on God's behalf. All right, God wants to use your mouth. The third is this one, that God wants to use your time. God wants to use your time. My favorite verse in regards to time is Acts 13, 36. It's about King David, and it says this. For David, <coughs> David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep, and he was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. Here's what that means. That David did exactly what God called David to do, and then he died, and then he started rotting. That's what that verse means. And some people are like, why is that your favorite verse? Because that's, I got news for you. <laughs> you see, did you know every single one of us at some point are going to get to this point in our life where it's over? I don't know if you've checked the statistics lately, but the death rate in America is hovering right around 100%. Okay? It's right there. And here's the reality. I mean, eat your kale, spinach soup, or whatever you want to do. All right? Do Pilates, you should. But you, one day, it's over. And let me just tell you what's going to happen, all right? I don't mean to be morbid, but it's just true, is that one day, you're done. Your time is over. They're going to dig a hole, and they're going to dress you up nice and whatever you wanted to be in. They're going to put you in a box, and they're going to drop you in that hole, and they're going to throw dirt in your face, come back to the church, eat potato salad, and talk about what, great, what a great guy you are. That's just true. It's just true. And let me just tell you this. You'd better make at least six friends in your life. That's how many handles are on that on that casket, all right? So you think about that. You think about that. And on your tombstone, if you have a tombstone, they're going to write some stuff. They're going to put your name up there. And they're going to say, born for me, 1973. And died. And I want to put in your arms tonight, but I don't think Gretchen will let me. Just so everybody will have that song in their head the whole time. They probably won't. And then they're going to put your epitaph. This little line about what a great guy you are or whatever, okay? And, but the most important thing on your tombstone is that little dash between those two numbers. You ever thought about that? That's the most important thing on your tombstone. That little dash between the year you were born and the year you died, that represents all of your time. All of your time. And when people stand up at your funeral and talk, or people talk about you after you're dead, you know what essentially they're doing? All they're doing is answering the question, what did they do with that dash? What did they do with that dash? And so let me ask you this. What are people going to say about you? How are you using your time? Do you realize that time, the time that God gives you is your most valuable commodity? So whatever you do, don't waste time. Waste money. If you need to waste something, waste money. There's plenty of that. You can go get more of that. All right? Some of you have done that, right? You had a lot, then you got to nothing, now you're back. All right? Welcome back. All right? See, you can replace money. You can even replace friends. Some of you had a bunch of friends, and then they all defriended you, and so you came to this church, and now you're trying to start over again. All right? You can do that. But when you're out of time, you're done. 
It is over. What do you want people to say about you? God wants to use your time. I'm not just talking about one hour a week where you can come and serve. You should probably do that. Get involved with what God is doing here at 1122. It is a movement for all people. God is moving like crazy. A whole bunch of people are discovering and deepening a relationship with Jesus. But what are you doing with all of your time? All of your time. Because there will be a day when they're going to dig a hole and put you in it like they did David. And what are they going to say about you? Man, I think about this. In Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that's how he starts the book out. Think about your funeral and what people are going to say about you at your funeral. Because I think about that. I think about what people are going to say about me at my funeral. And so, listen, there will be a day where I'm done. I'm done. And y'all are going to put me in a hole and throw dirt on me and show up here. And let me tell you, I hope there's a lot of people there. All right? I hope there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And I hope y'all just crying your face off. You know what I mean? Just snotting on each other. Yeah, I'll miss him so bad. Y'all to miss me. You understand? I hope you do. But I'm not going to be crying. Not me. I'm going to be face to face with the Lord. And here's what I want people to say about me. I want them to say about me what they said about the man that led me to Jesus. His name was Coach Bully. I talk about him all the time. He was a football coach. And he leveraged his time not just for the score on the scoreboard, but he leveraged, I mean, a bunch of his time. All that he did, he leveraged into boys and girls knowing about Jesus. That's it. He's the man that taught me about Jesus. And a few years ago, when he died at his funeral, Johnny Rickenbacker was a, another football player that he led to Christ. And he stood over Coach Lee's casket. And he said, he read Acts eleven twenty four, and he was a good man. Full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And man, that's a fact. He was a good man. Coach Lee was a good man. He was a good football coach. But more important than that, he was a good husband. His wife stood up and said, he never hurt me with his words. Not one time. Which is funny. You know what he called his wife? Big buddy. That's what he called her. Come here, big buddy. That's what he called her. All the time. She'd be like, what you want, coach? Call him coach. You come on in. All right? It was true. And he was a good dad. I mean, he was a good dad. And he wasn't just a dad to his own children who all loved the Lord. Now he was a dad to a whole bunch of us, man. He was a good man. And he was full of faith. He was full of faith. And you know the opposite of faith is fear. And I'm telling you, that dude, he was not afraid of anything. Coach Lee was not afraid of anything. One time we were outside of Dillon. We were working outside and, uh, when I was in college. And he saw this rattlesnake. And that crazy man picked that thing up by its tail and just went wham and killed it like that. And then hung it up on the tree. I said, like, what you doing, coach? He's like, I'm going to see all them, all his devil friends know the hell they going to. That's what he said. <laughs> right? He was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit. That God, God had an easy time directing the life of Coach Lee. He talked about Jesus like Jesus talked to him. And he was full of faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. I'm going to tell you what. He never spoke in a room this big, ever, one time in his life. In the Bible, you know what a great number is? Just one more. That's a great number. I was one of those. I was one of those that he spent his time. Y'all, he's a high school football coach. And this was not an excuse for him to be sorry. His last year in coaching, he won the uh, state championship in South Carolina. He's in the state champion Hall of Fame, or the South Carolina Hall of Fame, okay? I mean, he worked people about to death. But he would, he would carve out six weeks every summer to come to Camp Pine Hill Baptist Retreat Center to share the gospel with elementary and middle schooler and high school kids. And that's who poured into me. And so, if you've ever seen the tattoo I have on my arm, that's the verse I have, Acts eleven twenty four. Because when y'all bury me, that's what I want you to be able to say. He was a good man, 
full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. What are you doing with your time? Whatever you do, don't waste your time. Now, this does not mean that every single person should quit their job and go into full-time ministry. The truth is, if you are in Christ, you are in full-time ministry. With whatever God has given you to do, do it well and do it on purpose, which leads to the next thing that God wants to use. God wants to use your talent. Your talent. That God has wired you in such a way on purpose and He wants to use it. You see, the crazy thing is, if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis when God created Adam and Eve, He gives them what's called the cultural mandate. And He says, you have dominion over the creation. You're supposed to order it in such a way for human flourishing that looks a lot more like heaven. In our world, you know what we do? Really, the culture has dominion over us. You know how many people I've talked to about my age with kids, our, our kids' age. i got a nine-year-old and a five-year-old. And they'll come to me, people that love Jesus, and say, hey, listen, I'm not going to be in disciple group for a while, and I can't really be at church because we got Timmy's soccer schedule. And we're going to build our whole world around kickball. That's sad. And I am not anti-sports. I am pro-sports. Let me tell you the truth, though. Your kid's probably not going to be pro-sports. Kids' sports make a horrible God. They make an incredible avenue by which you can demonstrate and, and declare the gospel. My football coach led me to Jesus. Because the reality is this. Do you know that the average dad spends less than seven minutes a day talking to their kids? Tomorrow, we have baseball tryouts for JP. You know why I coach baseball? Here's why. I do want to spend that time with him. I do want to tell our kids on my team I coach it so I can, I can be in our community heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not in some kind of weird way, you know? I had a kid one time be like, hey, we're Jewish. I was like, cool, so is Jesus. You know, we talk about that. No problem. No problem. Because the reality is, what if, what if, they do, what if JP it just catches on fire? What if he's the next Dion where he plays uh, pro baseball and football? We've had some pro athletes in here right now. I, I hope and pray that God does bless them that way. That'd be great. What if, what if every time they pitch the ball, boom, he cracks it out, and they have to have a JP rule at Jack's Beach, right? Hey, when JP's playing, nobody can park in this parking lot because he busts all the windows and the Martins can't afford it, all right? And then what if football, what if he just, every time they toss in the ball, there's cleat marks all over the little kids because he's just running over them. And Coach Rick comes and says, I want him. And he, and he goes to play for the dogs, and he breaks Herschel and Chubb's record. And then he goes on to play for the Jaguars, and he brings Jesus and a Super Bowl to him. Praise God. And what if he buys me a private jet so I can fly around and watch him play with the Jaguars and the Braves, but still be back here to preach, all right? So even if he does all of that, which you're praying for, <laughs> at some point, you hang up the cleats, Right? You hang up the cleats. I'm telling you, we got professional athletes, former professional athletes in here right now. You hang up the cleats and then what? What matters most, what you doing with your time? What you do with that talent that God gave you? If God gives you the ability to play for the Jags, then do it to the glory of God. And no matter what God has wired you for, you do it for the glory of God. You spend all of your time for His glory and not your own. And He's wired you in such a way, He's given you certain gifts and talent for His glory and for your joy. You see, Coach Lee leveraged his time and his gifts to pour into people like me. Y'all know the first sermon I ever preached is because Coach Lee made me. Made me. I didn't volunteer for this. He comes up to me. We're at camp. I was, I was a teen. I was like 19 years old, I think. <clears throat> we're at camp, and there's about 100 fifth graders in the room, and it was during the worship time. And this is before we had, like, real worship songs. We were singing, I am a C, I am a C-H. I am a C-H-R-E-S-D-I-N. Anybody remember that song? 
All right. So I'm from Dillon, so I was in the ninth grade before I realized that we were spelling. I'm a Christian. You know, I just didn't know. I was like, I thought we were Southern Baptists. I didn't know we spoke in tongues, but whatever. It's camp glory. All right. So I was in. So they're singing the I Am A C song, and then Coach Lee says, Joby Martin, you always call me my whole name. Come here, boy. Yes, sir. So Joby Martin, you're going to preach the sermon tonight. Huh? Like in three minutes when the I Am A C is done? He's like, yeah. And I said, Coach, I'm not very comfortable speaking in front of people. And he said, comfortable? Boy, did you say comfortable? You think Daniel was comfortable in the lion's den? Boy, do you think Paul and Silas were comfortable in prison? Boy, do you think Jesus Christ was comfortable on the cross? <laughs> no. The coach, what do I preach about? Or what do I talk about? He said, boy, that's easy. You talk about Jesus, you talk about 30 minutes. Go ahead. <laughs> so I did. And I got up there, and I preached on John 3, 16. Can I tell you what? That's the only verse I could find in the Bible at that point in my walk. That was it. I got up there and preached, and some kids got saved. And from that moment on, Coach used to always tell me, boy, when you teach the Bible, I see you come alive, and I see them come alive. And then he would come get me from my house. At this point, I'd moved, didn't even live in my city anymore. And so he would go, he'd be invited to go speak at the Rotary Club because he was this, you know, high school football coach that did really well. And so people would invite him to the Rotary Club to come speak, and he would call me, Joby Martin, I'm coming to get you. And I'd go and get in his Toyota, and we'd ride and I'm like, why are you taking me, coach? And he's like, boy, because I'm going to go speak, and they can't understand me anyway, so I'm going to take you. And we'd get up in front of the people, and he'd say, hey, I know you people want to hear about football, but we ain't going to talk about football first. We're going to talk about Jesus. Joe Martin, get up here and tell them about Jesus. And then I'd just be up there like, hey. I mean, it was crazy. Now, here's the thing. A calling is not for just some special group of people that see a picture of the Virgin Mary in their, in their grilled cheese, and she tells them what they're supposed to do with their life. If you're a Christian, you have a calling. The word vocation comes from a Latin word, root word being vocal or calling. That every single one of us, doctor, lawyer, teacher, CEO of major corporations and CEO of a kid or two at home, every single one of us have a calling and God has wired you in such a way that you would just do with your gifts and talents what He has created you to do. That's it. You have a calling in your life. You're in the full-time gospel ministry. The full-time gospel ministry. For, for human flourishing. It's not a waste of time that you are in the job that you are, you're, that you are in. All right? You are creating this place to look more and more like heaven. But also to open your mouth and open your eyes and leverage your time and go to work on mission. Let me tell you one of the greatest leadership moves I've ever made in my life. It's creating the kind of environment where God could hear, where, where Gretchen could hear the call of God on her life. You guys realize that a few years ago, that when 1122 started, she said, there's no way I can sing. There's no way I can lead worship. I can't be a part of it. Let me give you a list of my limitations. A list of my limitations. And she had them. Here's why, and here's why, and here's why. <laughs> and husbands, let me, I did not quote some verse about submission. You understand that? If you do that, it's over, buddy. In more ways than one, okay? No way. We tried to create the kind of environment where there was a lot of nudges, and you'd ever pray to God about people right there. Dear God, I just pray you open up Gretchen's heart. She'd do what you've called her to do, which is sing. You know, that kind of thing. But try to say, hey, baby, look, you got to step out. I mean, you got to do this. And that song, What Grace Did For Me, she wrote that in her journal. You get that? You get that? And see, the crazy thing is, is all you see is that. And you think, oh, well, if I could sing like her, I'd do that. She used to sit on the sidelines too years ago and say, God could never use me. You realize that every single one of you, if you're in Christ, you're called. 
through the full-time ministry. Not the way I do it, but just the way God has called you to do it. The Bible says this in 1 Timothy 4, 14 and 15. Do not neglect the gift you have. The worst thing you could do is try to use my gift. Good Lord, the world does not need any more me's, okay? If God was done with you, then you wouldn't be here today. If He woke you up this morning, He's not finished with you. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. When you get up and go to work or school or do whatever it is, tomorrow, go on mission and go on purpose because God can use you right there. God wants to use our eyes and our mouth and our time and our talent and our treasure, our money. That's what God wants to use. And it's normally at this point where people are like, yep, knew it. I knew it. At some point, they always go for your money. All right. You know what this is? Anybody know what this is? See, y'all don't know. Because we never passed one. Some of you are like, what is that, a hubcap, belt buckle? What is that thing? All right. <laughs> this is called an offering plate. We had to order it on the BibleBookstore.com. Do you know that? And we got a nice one. These are expensive, by the way. All right. And this one, it's really nice. It's got blue felt right here. And you know why? In case you cheat and you just drop a nickel in there, you won't be embarrassing. That's what, that's what happened. Now, <clears throat> you can think we're after your money. That's fine. God is after your heart. And those two things are tied very, very closely together. Jesus said, nobody can serve two masters. And I tell you, God wants to use your treasure. First and foremost, it's all his. Do you know why we don't pass an offering plate here? I don't ever want this to get in the way of you hearing the gospel. So years and years ago, I decided we're not passing offering plates. We're not passing them. We're just not doing it. Because in, in, in the book of Corinthians, um, Paul tells the church that God loves a cheerful giver and nobody should give under compulsion. And I just thought when this thing got under your nose, that might, you might be, there might be some compulsion. Like, did you bring anything? No. And, and I don't want you to ever do that. I don't, I don't want you to ever do that. The other thing is I know some of you are so concerned about what everybody thinks and when the plate comes, and you are generous, you're very, very generous, and you, got, you bring God first and best, but you do it online, and you would get it, and you'd be like, I give online. I, I'm, a, I'm a swiper. That's <laughs> what you would do. I don't want you to have to do that. You know, there are some churches. I found this out this week. There are some churches. When you give online, it'll print your receipt. So on the weekends, you can go, ha, 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 ha. That's true. I'm sure there's a great reason that I can't figure out, but... We're not after your money. Here's what you've got to know. God wants to use your treasure. That it's all God's. It's all God's. You think God gave it all to you, for you? You're, you're sorely mistaken. Here's fundamentally how God wants to use your treasure in two big chunks. One chunk is God wants you to understand <clears throat> that you bring first and best to Him. And the reason is because He is first. He loved you first. He sent His best in Jesus. In the Scriptures, you don't take up offerings. You bring offerings as a response to who God is, and God is first. That's why we don't take up an offering here. You have to go bring it to God. You bring it to the boxes. You can bring it electronically. You bring it however you bring it. And know this, at the end of this service, there's no different response than any other service. We're not passing a plate or anything like that. But God wants to use your treasure, a chunk of it, not even just a tithe, okay? Uh, there are some people that get hung up on tithe, on 10%. And anytime somebody's like, you know what, I've been studying the Bible and tithe is in the Old Testament, da -da -da -da, I just be like, hey, let's just cut right to it. Are you trying to do some biblical gymnastics so you can keep more for you? If that's true, just say it. Just say it. Just say, I'm greedy, I want more. Then we can talk about that. But don't try to make this thing try to say, 
that the first isn't God's, you're going to have a hard time. And in fact, man, you, you know, Jesus didn't tithe his blood. He gave every single bit of it. It's what every single one of us need to do that call themselves a Christian and understand that God wants to use us. He wants to use the treasure that he has entrusted to you. And so you take a chunk of it. How big of a chunk? Whatever you think of, a little bit more than that until it hurts. So it changes you a little bit and you invest it into the expansive kingdom of God. That's it. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. God wants your heart, not your treasure. If you wanted your stuff, he could just take it. He wants your heart. And so what in the world, how do you lay up treasures in heaven? What can you take to heaven? Well, you definitely can't take stuff. That's why you've never seen a hearse with a U-Haul behind it. They don't even make hearses with trailer hitches, okay? You cannot get a tow package on a hearse. Why? It makes no sense. So why would we invest everything in something as temporary as this world, as if we think we're going to live here forever? Is our citizenship not somewhere else? It would be like, I've told you this before, it'd be like moving into the Holiday Inn Express and saying, I'm, I'm going to be here five days. I need granite countertops and hardwood floors. I think the manager of Holiday Inn would be like, that's not a good investment. So you take a chunk of it and you, you push it in towards the Lord and say, okay, God, for the expanse of your kingdom. Because the only thing you can take to heaven with you is people. I think this place is a wise investment because it's a movement for all people to discover and deepen a relationship with Jesus. Now, then you say, well, what about the rest? Okay, after, after I bring the first chunk to Jesus, what about the rest? It's also for the Lord. 100% of it is God's, for God's, and here's the fun part, and your joy. And your joy. He's a good dad. He loves to give good gifts to his kids. The deal is, God has given you what he's given you for your enjoyment. That means that, that when you bring that first to the Lord, the rest is for you to enjoy in the Lord. Now, the, the, the more you become like him, the more you get to know him, the more joy you find in the things that please him. But this doesn't mean that you've got to live in a cave and only come out on Triple Coupon Tuesday. That's not how Christians are supposed to live. That means that we're supposed to enjoy this life together, man. You know what this means, husbands? Take your wife out to a nice dinner for the glory of God to celebrate that woman. The Bible says, he who finds a wife finds what is good. That means take her somewhere, folks, where, where they bring you the food, okay? I mean, really ball out on her. But, and order, order that steak and order it the way God intended it to be ordered. That's medium rare. And if anybody cooks it any more than that, disciple them in the ways of the Lord. And if, and if there's an abomination and they use steak sauce, cast out the demon. You understand what I'm saying? But the point is, it's not about the steak. You cut into the steak and you eat it. And if, and if the highest level of your enjoyment is the steak, how sad is that? But we worship the God of the bone-in ribeye. We eat that and say, bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. And God has given you that to enjoy. Go on a vacation. Take your kids to Disney. You understand? Suffer for Jesus. He'll, he'll grow patience in you. But you, you delight in them. Do some of that kind of stuff. And when you begin to see all of it is his, the first chunk you bring to him and say, all right, God, for the expanse of your kingdom. And then everything else... For your glory and my joy, God wants to use your treasure. See, because what I hear over and over and over, and I'll tell you, 1122 does a daggum good job at this, but what I hear a lot of times when we talk about you being in the front lines of ministry, I hear excuses. 
well, I don't know if God could use me because, you know, my limitations. God's greater than your limitations. If he can use a donkey, he can use us. And so he wants to use your eyes so that you can start seeing the way he sees. He wants to use your mouth so that you can open your mouth to declare the, the glorious riches of God. You can tell people about the reality that brought you out of darkness into marvelous light. He wants to use your time, all of your time that you would leverage for him. He wants to use your talents. He wired you exactly the way he wired you on purpose. He wants to use your treasure, all of it for him. A chunk would go to him for the expanse of his kingdom. And all of it would be to glorify and worship him. And you know what I hear? I hear people go, well, I don't know what to do. I don't know what path I should be on. And I don't know what to say. And if I just had more time because I'm busy, or if I was gifted like that person was, or if I just had more money then and only then, hey, listen, God is greater. He's greater than our limitations. And so what the church of 1122, if you've been confused about this, do not be confused anymore. The reason that you come into this place is so that the church staff, the pastors, the elders, the teachers, the shepherds, that we would equip you, the saints. Did you know you were a saint? You, you didn't know that, did you? If you're in Christ, you're a saint. That we would equip you, the saints, for the work of the ministry. Not so that you would leave your job. There might, there's a very small percentage of you in here that need to leave their job and go into ministry full-time that way. Every one of you need to go back into your job and understand it is the full-time ministry. And so that you would come here to be equipped to go to the front line. To go to the front line. You, can't, you see, because <clears throat> sometimes the way people talk about church is, you know, football, college football is about to start, pro football is about to start. And it would be like if we were all on one big team together. And this is the huddle. And we all show up here on Sunday. And I'm calling the plays up here. And so I kneel down and we call the play together. All right, ready? Make disciples on two. Make disciples on two. Ready, break. And then instead of running to the line to run the play, what a lot of Christians do is they run into the sidelines. And they talk about the play. But, whew, that was a good play, wasn't it? Man, I love the way he calls plays. I used to be on another team, and that guy didn't call his plays. It's like this guy did. And if I, you know, but this play, that was awesome. And why don't we get together on the whiteboard? Why don't we talk about the play? Okay, the way this play made me feel was home again. When he ran that route, it made me feel that way. Man, I love the play. And then the next time we huddle up and you get together, but that sure was a great play last time. And the problem is, we don't call the play for you to run the sideline to talk about the play. We call the play so you can run to the scrimmage line and run the play to actually make disciples, to get out and, and have God use your eyes and your mouth and your time and your talents and your treasure and run the play of taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, starting in your house, in your neighborhood, in your school, and doing it the way God has wired you to do it. For His glory and for your joy. One of my favorite quotes in regard to this is from Teddy Roosevelt. He says this. Think about it in light of what we've been talking about here today. Teddy Roosevelt says, <clears throat> It is not the critic who counts. It is not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasm, the great devotion, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. So in other words, folks, Church of 1122, it's time to get off the sidelines and get in the game. 
that you don't just come to church to sit and soak because you'll just sour and stink. But you come here to be equipped, to be filled up, to go out to the places that God has appointed you for this time, just like He did King David. And you'll take your time, that dash that God has given you. And you'll do, you'll do it however God has, has wired you to do it. For His glory and for your joy. And so what we're going to do, here's how we're going to close, is that this is the commissioning. When I went into the ministry, some people got together and laid hands on me and they commissioned me into the ministry. What we want to do today for every believer that says, hey, okay, I get it. I'm in the game. I'm in. For some of you, you've been in for a long time. You've been serving like crazy. You, you, you are the poster child of everything we've talked about. Well, this will just be a reaffirmation that you're in. But for some of you, for the very first time, you say, okay, maybe it's not all about me. That God's greater than my limitations. And I believe in Jesus. Now I'm going to follow him and have him use me as a blank check. God, spend me however you would. And you would step in and say, all right, tomorrow when I go to work, when I go to school, when I go to whatever it is God has called me to do, I'm going to go on purpose. I'm going to go on mission. Because I'm chosen. I'm a part of a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And I'm going to do this. And, I, and I'm scared, and I don't know what to say, but I'm just believing that God is going to use my eyes and my mouth and my time and my talent and my treasure. And so if that's you, and again, you do not have to stand up, but if that's you, I want you to stand. I want you to grab your notes, and I want you to stand up right where you are and say, all right, God, I'm in. I'm in. And we're going to commission you into the ministry. Now, again, you don't have to stand up. It's all right. You come back next week, everything will be the same. But if you're ready, if you're ready to say, I'm in, you don't even know how, all right? But you're going to believe God. Now, for those of you standing, we're going to, um, you're going to repeat after me, okay? That's how we're going to do this, in this commission. And some of you have been there before, you know, I'll tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. It's kind of like that, but different, but it's the same sort of progress, process here. And this is you saying, all right, God, use me however you will, however you will. And I'm hoping that this will be a defining moment in the church of 1122. That God would anoint us and appoint us and send us out for the sake of the gospel. And so it's going to start out, I state your name. You don't say state your name, you actually state your name, all right? Some of the other services have had trouble with that, but I believe you're going to be okay. And let me tell you this too, when we get finished, before you walk out of here today, because I know you're going to lose this in about two seconds, I want you to take a picture of it, and I want you to post it somewhere. I want you to post it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and if you're not into that, post it on your corkboard over your sink, or wherever you post stuff, okay? Because it is a public declaration that, God, I'm all in. So here we go. I state your name. I'm a chosen person. I'm a royal priesthood. Part of a holy nation. God's very own possession. I've been called out of darkness. Into his light. And as such, I will demonstrate the gospel. Through compassion. And declare the gospel. Through word and deed, I will leverage my eyes, my mouth, my time, my talents, and my treasure for the glory of God and the advancement of His kingdom. I believe this calling and receive its privilege, fully surrendered to God's purpose in creation as revealed to me through His Son. Jesus Christ, you have been commissioned into the ministry. Would you please pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, I thank you and I praise you for this army of men and women and students 
standing before me this day. Lord, I pray that we would hear your call. That we would, we would not be afraid. We would not tremble. God, we would be strong and we would be courageous. God, that we would be a movement. God, we would be a called out gathering of people that declared Jesus as what's most important to us. And that God, you would use our eyes and our mouth and our time and our talents and our treasure for your glory and for our joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we respond like I talked about earlier. We respond to the gospel by joining our voices together to worship Him because He's worth it. That we respond by coming to the altar and casting our cares upon Him because He cares for us. And we respond by bringing our first and our best because He went first by sending us His best. Let us respond.